listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture reading this morning is from Luke 1, uh, continuing with the story of Mary, and uh, it's uh, verses 39 to 45, and then finishing with verse 56. And you can follow along with the Pew Bibles. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. Good morning, everyone. So the Christmas season is finally upon us. At the Brockway House, we finally got our tree up and got it decorated. We had to do a little bit each night this week, but we got it done. Um, And Miriam, our daughter, who's three, she's like finally at the age where she can help. So we would get the ornaments ready with the hook, and she would put it on, and she'd be so proud. And then her little brother is finally at the age where he can rip the ornaments off the tree (laughs) right after she puts it on which creates this terrible but hilarious uh, never-ending cycle that was uh, pretty fun. Not for Miriam, but it was fun for for the rest of us. So we're in the midst of our Advent series, looking at the story of Mary from the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to look specifically at the story of Mary and Elizabeth, or as I have come to call them, two fierce ladies. Last week we looked at the angel's appearance to Mary. Uh, Mary's a young, poor, peasant girl engaged to a man named Joseph. A lot of us probably know the story. And one day uh, an angel shows up and tells Mary that she's going to become pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, that she's going to give birth to a son, and that that son is going to be the promised deliverer of her people. So, you know, just a typical day in the life of a poor peasant girl. Probably not. Mary accepts this news from the angels. She accepts this call to become part of what God is doing in the world. But there are still some problems. Mary's not married. So she's going to become an unwed mother at a time when the penalty for getting pregnant before you were married, does anyone know what they used to do? It was death by stoning. So this is a big deal. Mary has just received news that could cost her her life. And that's where our story picks up today in the aftermath of the angel's announcement. We're told that Mary went with haste to a Judean town on the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now for me, this raises two questions. Who are Zechariah and Elizabeth? And why does Mary go to their place? We actually meet Zechariah and Elizabeth earlier in the Gospel of Luke. They're the first two characters we're introduced to way back in verse 5. Zechariah is a priest serving in the temple of Jerusalem, 
And his wife Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron. That's Moses' brother, the very first priest of Israel. So these two are kind of a big deal. They're like a clergy power couple. They have all the religious credentials you could ask for. The text even calls them blameless. There's just one problem. Elizabeth is barren. This holy couple is childless and beyond their childbearing years. Now, if you're familiar at all with the stories of the Bible, that should sound kind of familiar to you. The history of God's people, particularly the Old Testament, is loaded with examples of righteous couples who can't have children. Abraham and Sarah, who we talked about a few weeks ago in our Genesis series. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel. All those heroes of the faith had the same fundamental problem. Luke is situating Zechariah and Elizabeth in this history, this tradition, and we have every reason to expect that this is their story. Or more specifically, that it's Zechariah's story, right? Because this is a patriarchal time, so it was always the man's story. We know the formula. There's a righteous man, can't have children, God shows up, makes some sort of a promise, a child is born, and then the man stays faithful. This is how Israel's story has been advanced for centuries. Luke is drawing on this tradition, setting us up to expect Zechariah to carry the story forward. But let's see what happens. Reading from Luke 1, beginning in verse 8, and it's going to be on the screen. Once when Zechariah was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by law according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Verse 11. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. This is John the Baptist, okay? So we're all keeping up. <clears throat> you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is good news, right? This holy elderly couple is going to have a baby. But then Zechariah opens his big dumb mouth in verse 18, and let's see what happens then. It's also on the screen. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. Probably not a good idea for any man to ever say that about his wife. Just, just public service announcement. <clears throat> the angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute." unable to speak until the day these things occur. This is what we would call a twist in the story. The angel brings good news that Elizabeth is going to have a son, and Zechariah asks the angel to prove it. He asks for a sign, which is kind of a passive-aggressive way of saying that he doesn't really buy it, and the angel silences him. Now, we could read this as a punishment, Zechariah gets out of line, he said the wrong thing, and now he's being punished for his disbelief. But I think there's something much bigger going on here. Luke is telling us that this isn't Zechariah's story. God is up to something new here. This is not going to be like the religious stories you're used to. 
and the religious insiders are going to miss it. This interaction between Zechariah and the angel actually foreshadows what's going to happen between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the temple authorities. Jesus is going to bring a word from God, and the religious insiders are totally going to miss the boats. The story of Zechariah brings me to really the first takeaway of this story for me. Sometimes for God to show up, religious people need to keep their mouths shut. I realize the irony of this being my first point in a 20-minute sermon. That's not lost on me. But stick with me for a second. Stick with me. How often does the work of God get stymied by religious experts who think they have all the answers? Why is it that as Christians we're so quick to talk, so quick to weigh in with our opinion, our prescriptions, and so slow to listen? How many seekers, how many skeptics, how many people struggling with the tough questions have been turned away from the faith by well-meaning religious folks who think they have all the answers? Consider that the gospel opens by taking the religious expert, the smartest guy in the room, the priest, the one with all the training, he went to seminary, he knows, his, he knows his Bible, he knows his stuff, and it silences him. God's first step in bringing Jesus into the world is to tell the religious expert, you don't get to talk anymore. If that doesn't give us some reason for humility, I'm not sure what will. And so in a surprising twist, the story is carried on, not by Zechariah, but by Mary and Elizabeth. We looked at Mary's story last week, and I'm not going to rehash that too much. But we can learn a lot by comparing Mary's reaction to the angel with Zechariah's reaction. Mary meets the same angel, Gabriel, when the birth of Jesus is foretold. But her interaction goes a lot differently. First, there's a shift in location. The angel leaves the temple and comes to Mary in her hometown, a small village in the Galilee region. This is a move from the center to the margins. Jerusalem, and especially the temple, that's the center of religious life at this point, while Galilee is the sticks. It was the north country. It was the place that, like, respectable people didn't go. This would be like if the story started out in Washington, D.C., in the Capitol building, maybe and then jumped to like a migrant camp in Tijuana. Or if we started out in Rochester, and then maybe moved to like Holly, right? I haven't lived here that long, but I've lived here long enough to hear about Holly. It's poor, it's rural, it's the boonies. It sounds like exactly the kind of place God might show up and start a revolution, just like the Galilee. So the location is different, but even the language changes. The angel appears to Zechariah, but the angel is sent to Mary. It's like with this move out to the sticks, to the margins, the stakes are higher. This visit to this young peasant girl, it's more credentialed than the angel's appearance in the temple. And of course the reactions are very different. Zechariah reacts to the angel's message with fear and doubt. He's terrified and he doesn't buy it. But Mary reacts with surprise 
and with faith. This contrast between Mary and Zechariah gets at another big takeaway. If you want to find the people who are most receptive to the good news, get out of the temple and go to the margins. This is going to become a bit of a theme in the, in the Jesus story as it unfolds. The religious insiders are never going to quite get it. The rich people don't get it. The people in authority certainly don't get it. But the poor, the marginalized, the underside of society, prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, they know exactly what's going on. They're tuned in to what God is doing through Jesus. Mary's response is different because it comes from the margins. And the same can be said of Elizabeth. The text doesn't give us nearly as much info about Elizabeth as it does for Mary and Zechariah, but we do see her reaction to the news of her pregnancy, and it's worlds removed from that of her husband. When she finds out she's pregnant, she says, This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. The disgrace Elizabeth is referring to is her barrenness. You see, she was righteous, but that could only take women so far in the ancient world. Women couldn't serve as priests. Women weren't allowed in the innermost part of the sanctuary. They couldn't own property. They usually weren't uh, citizens. And the primary function of women at that time in that society was to bear children. So if you were barren, if you couldn't bear children back then, it didn't matter how holy and righteous you were. Society thought something was wrong with you. And before we judge the ancient world too harshly, let's talk about how we still do that today. How we still treat childless women like there's something wrong. How even in the church, women who don't have children or who choose not to have children have to field a lot of inappropriate questions and probing as to why. Yeah. Part of the reason we read these old stories that seem so foreign to us is because we're still doing the same stuff. We're still making the same mistakes today. Elizabeth has carried this great shame all of her adult life. Here's her husband, the priest, and she's unable to give him a child. But the gospel flips that. Zechariah is brought down. He's humbled, and it's Elizabeth who's raised up. This gives us a hint as to why Mary goes with haste to visit Elizabeth. She's on a quest for solidarity. Both women are in the midst of unexpected pregnancies, and Elizabeth knows what it's like to be shamed and excluded over her body. And so now Mary, who's pregnant out of wedlock, carries her own shame in the eyes of society, and she's looking for a comrade. There's risk here. There's risk in Mary visiting Elizabeth and Zechariah. This is the priest's wife getting a visit from her knocked-up cousin. What will the people think? What if people start talking? What if Elizabeth reacts negatively and has Mary put to death? But Mary goes in faith, looking for a friend. And she finds far more than that. 
Elizabeth is overjoyed when she sees Mary. The child leaps in her womb. John the Baptist performs essentially the first liturgical dance in the womb. And Elizabeth becomes the first person to hail Jesus as Lord. The Holy Spirit comes upon her as it came upon Mary, as it came upon the prophets and the kings of old. And Elizabeth is empowered to see what God is up to. And rather than condemning Mary for her pregnancy, she rejoices and praises God. Which brings me to my third takeaway. Reverence and joy trump judgment and condemnation. As religious people, we can be pretty quick to pass judgment. Quick to give a verdict, whether it be on a situation, on a person, on ourselves. I know I do this all the time. Sometimes it feels like I can't relate to the world without judging it in some way. In California, I knew this, uh, this couple in their early 20s. They were really good kids. They grew up in the church. They stayed engaged with the church as young adults. But then they got pregnant, and they weren't married. And this young church couple was terrified to tell their church, the place where they had spent their whole lives. They were terrified of being judged, being condemned, being kicked out. But when they finally did announce their pregnancy to the church, the church surprised them by rejoicing. Some older folks in the church got together and threw this couple a surprise baby shower. They got married. Uh, The baby was born and dedicated in that church. The congregation flooded this young couple with love and support, and to my knowledge, they are still actively involved in that church to this day. What if as Christians we made a conscious decision to enter into experiences of shame and guilt, not to condemn or judge, but to bring joy and to bring reverence? What if our first reaction was not to render a verdict on the situation, but to hand the situation over to God and rejoice? Well, then the Holy Spirit might show up, just like it does for Mary and Elizabeth. Then we might actually see God at work where others would only find cause for shame. That's the story of Mary and Elizabeth. Two fierce ladies dealing with unexpected pregnancies, shamed by their communities, out of sync with the religious establishment, and yet totally tuned in to what God is doing in the world. The story has a lot to teach us. It challenges us, uh, those of us who are religious insiders, to be slow to speak and assume a posture of humility. It teaches us to look for God's activity, not here in the sanctuary, but out there on the margins. And it challenges us all to embody a spirit of joy and reverence through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary and Elizabeth experienced something that a lot of people in their day missed. A lot of people today still miss. Their sons would challenge the political and religious establishments of their time. And this little revolution that started with these two women in a house on the Judean hillside, would change the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Mary and Elizabeth. Thank you for the example of these two brave women 
and the revolution you called them to partner in. We pray that their story would transform our hearts this Advent, that you'd give us the humility to see your work in our midst and the courage to join in that work as they did. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.